Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm delighted to be talking to the author Ellen E. Jones whose new book Screen Deep How Film and TV Can Solve Racism and Save the World is a fascinating read. If you enjoy the conversation please remember to tweet and spread the word, like, leave a review. We really rely on your help to spread the word about the podcast and our audience is growing, so it's working. So thank you so much for that, and please continue if you can. Before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation. I, I contributed to a sort of Dorlin and Kindersley children's book of cinema uh, a few years ago. But, that counts. Um, that counts. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Have you, have, you got a, have you got a shelf at home and you're going to put that on? You're going to put this one on? And just <laughs> space for your future books. I made the mistake of giving my kids that book and they totally ripped it apart, as children will do. <laughs> <laughs> what, physically or, or like critically? They sort I, don't of like... think it, I, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think it was a critical comment on the book. I think it just got in the way of um, some some lego play or something <laughs> so how did you how did you sort of come into uh, come into writing on film well i originally when i was a teenager i wanted to be a film director or filmmaker i wonder how how, how many film journalists that's the case for but they just aren't willing to admit it but um <laughs> it kind of occurred to me 
quite soon that I couldn't I couldn't work out how I would go from being where I was to being there. And at this point, there weren't a lot of women directors that I'd heard about or directors of colour or anything like that in this country, certainly, that I knew of. Um, and also just like, I, I, you know, I grew up on a council estate and stuff. So my parents were both um, primary school teachers. Um, so we had a lot of books around and then like, and I'm an only child as well, so I had a lot of positive parental attention. Um, but um, but I still couldn't see that there wasn't a path. Where I didn't know anybody who worked in the industry or anything like that. And also, I, I sort of got to understand that I didn't really like bossing people about. I preferred either working on my own or being part of a team. So so it just I just decided it wasn't for me, essentially, and, and kind of simultaneously got more into journalism, started working for the student paper, really enjoyed the, that kind of the buzz of that sort of teamwork aspect. I remember um, at university, I went to to a meeting for new writers for, on the film pages of the, the student paper. And the guy who was editing it at the time was so sort of snooty and off-putting that I decided that wasn't going to be for me. I ended up writing about music instead, <laughs> <laughs> even though the film was what I was interested in. But, um, but yeah, so I did, a, I did a postgraduate in journalism and from there got a job as the editorial assistant stroke editor's PA, heavy on the PA, at Esquire magazine. Yeah, and that was an interesting time in journalism, magazine journalism, because we were sort of just transitioning from the lads mag era back into something a bit more cerebral and sophisticated. But I learned I learned a lot from like my the sort of seniors there. I had I worked with some really great journalists who basically taught me how to be a journalist. And then I, when I realised I wasn't going to progress much in that role because I didn't care about a lot of the things that an Esquire man needs to care about, um, <laughs> I um, I quit. Did started doing freelance. Um, and started working for an organisation called what was then called Film Club. It's a sort of children's educational film education chat. We used to just go around the country setting up film clubs in schools and screening them films, um, mm. and that was a brilliant job. I loved that. Uh, it's, it sort of later became, I think it's called Interfilm now, and I think maybe sort of got brought into the, under the umbrella of the BFI more generally. But So I sort of found my way back to film and, and film reviewing that way. I did an internship at Hot Dog Magazine. Remember Hot Dog Magazine? I, I remember the title. I was, when, this must have been the two thou- late 2000s, right? This must have been like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I'll have been gone from England by then. Yeah. You're in Italy, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh-huh. so I remember okay. the lads mags of the 1990s. And yeah. One of, the, one of the reasons I got away from England. <laughs> well, quite right. <laughs> you made the escape while you could. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, actually, in fact, Hot Dog shared an office with Loaded. <laughs> is it Loaded or Stuff Magazine? Well, not not Loaded. It was it was a different it was a different sort of off brand lads mag. But they, a, yeah, it was a cheaper was... a cheaper version of Loaded. <laughs> a cheaper version of Loaded, yeah, even cheaper. So I remember they were always like big inflatable penises. I've got a memory of someone like cavorting around the office on an inflatable penis. Not someone from Hot Dog Magazine, I should say. But yeah, I was always I was I was interested in that, and I was I loved Neon Magazine and Premiere, and yeah. Anyway, so I read a lot of film magazines, and um, that's that was my my first film review printed one. I think was in Hot Dog Magazine, and it was of Cheaper by the Dozen Two. Oh, a classic! A classic <laughs> with Eugene Levy, Dan Levy's dad, better known as now. Um, playing the sort of the father of a huge brood of kids 
and I was quite proud of calling him. I called him a contraception dodger <laughs> in the coffee. Um, and that's when I knew I was born to do it. <laughs> it's still Steve Martin in that, isn't it? Steve yeah, Martin. Steve Martin. And uh, sorry, that's that's more, he's more the star, but I, I find Eugene Levy more interesting. But yeah. Yeah, right. his eyebrows are more interesting than anything. <laughs> sure. I mean, Eugene Levy had a real career as a sort of um, a brilliant sort of uh, improvisational comic, along with the the guy from Spiral. He was part Tap. of Christopher Guest crew. He's exactly, yeah. Guest's mates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he's brilliant, and his son Dan Levy is like a big star now, um, and you know from Shit's Creek and so on, which they worked on together. Exactly. Um, Although I heard his latest thing is not very good. Uh, the title escapes me at the moment, but it was on one of the streaming. Things is it called the guilt trip or something or? I know what you mean. I watched half of it and then got bored. But there's, I, there, I liked there's, it. There's the review. I've got a soft spot for him. I've got a soft spot for him. I like. I like it. Um, but uh, I was hoping it didn't make you cry quite fast enough. It's got Ruth Negger in who I think's amazing. But anyway, right? Yeah, I she digress. was passing. <laughs> yeah, and... yeah, she's amazing. So does that does that answer the question? Yeah, I suppose I suppose the step is from magazine journalism into writing a book would be like the, the where, where was that where did that idea sort oh, of well, come into come into play? Well, I've been writing a lot for the Guardian, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, I I I moved on from magazines to working at the Independent, mm. um, and I was I used to have a column at the Independent on Sunday when the Independent was an actual newspaper, as opposed to whatever it is now. It's like what? what? Um, <laughs> I was going to say, what is it now? Because I, I only see it, I only see it online, uh, and then, then with great difficulty. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I will say no more if I okay. speak, as they say on the internet. Um, but um, yeah, the the um, yeah, so I, so I got into, I learned the discipline of comment writing and opinion writing, mm. which is which is basically having opinions about absolutely everything. <laughs> mm, mm, that's a tough that's a tough one otherwise known as twitter isn't it <laughs> yeah well exactly um and then, and in fact good that you bring up twitter because i do think that's like a part of the origin story of the book is like it, it, i mean it still happens now but certainly around the time of george floyd's murder before then actually it, there would always there'll be some kind of racial furore scandal story on twitter and it would only like in some kind of cult, some kind of culture or pop culture thing. So, so the example I'd use is um, Danny Baker posting that picture that of, about around the time of Harry and Meghan's wedding with like a monkey holding hands or like a monkey getting married and people talking about the racial connotations of that. And then in turn, people saying, "Oh, Danny Baker is a lovely bloke. He hasn't got a racist bone in his body." Blah blah blah. And in, in other words the debate very quickly becoming derailed from an opportunity to talk about racial stere- racist stereotypes, I should say, that would be euphemistic, um, and how they're kind of perpetuated in our society and what the harm that they cause to uh, a sort of individualised personal discussion about Danny Baker's character, which, which in my view is neither here nor there. Like I think we, we often try, I'm not interested in locating racism in the character of an individual or their heart so i don't think i'm not interested in who's a racist and who isn't a racist because partly it's unknowable but also i don't think it's really the point about how racism works in culture and in screen culture in particular in society it's more it's if, if we if we can sort of safely locate it in someone else's character or some distant part of the world or part of history then that's a way of us not having to deal with the ways in which it manifests and causes real world harm right now. So I got frustrated with the sort of level of social media debate about this topic, which was the only place where the debate was really happening on social media, but in this kind of really superficial way. 
um and i wanted to kind of just delve into it a bit more and actually like get somewhere <laughs> i mean you talk about having you sort of like i think at the beginning of it you say something about like you don't really want to have debates about it anymore you want to have conversations and you want to you want to sort of you know you want to have a more in-depth and this seems to be part of that right well what i mean by that is that another another kind of inefficient frustrating diverting distracting way in which race is discussed in that in our culture is in this kind of like panel show not panel show like uh you know news night sort of or news oppositional debate format where because it's a debate you're you're sort of you're always debating some kind of facile question like is britain a racist country or something like that which is just designed to wind people up um and therefore get more viewers or more traffic but not actually get to grips with with the real issues and my contention like one of the sort of big ideas behind this book is that when we argue no matter how well informed your arguments are by statistics and facts and anecdotes and so on and often these debates are not well informed but, in, but even if they are you only entrench the position further you you and your opponent you get more entrenched in your positions because it's just not the way that the human heart and the human mind works like what what actually changes minds is empathy story and storytelling because storytelling is the way that we create empathy about situations that we had might not have otherwise personally experienced or encountered so i so and i think that screen storytelling which is my kind of slightly pretentious way of talking about film and telly is particularly suited to that because partly because it's a mass medium in a way that literature which also has that power isn't or like theater isn't and partly because it's narrative in the way that say social media or even like TikTok or which obviously has a video element um, isn't. You can really, you can tell stories at a length and in a depth and with a complexity that invites that kind of compassion and that kind of, it's as close as you can get to experiencing another person's life. Um, And therefore it really can change people's minds and and deepen their understanding of, of issues which colloquially I think are quite, misunderstood or superficially understood i.e race what race is and what racism is and you talk about yourself and how you saw things you know you have a personal sort of uh, in your uh, an early chapter of the book you talk about how you identify with people on the screen and how you see yourself and how you see yourself in people who are totally different from you as well it's not mm. just like oh there's somebody who shares my social background and racial background and so i'm gonna yeah. identify with you you identify with you know yeah, and, and and that's sort of similar uh, to a lot of people's experience. What were some of those earliest sort of identifications? I know you say in the book, but I'm I'm assuming a lot of our listeners won't have read it yet. Yet, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. Go and read it. Um, part well, part of what I'm doing, just to say, part of what I'm doing with that chapter, which is like I, I it's the it's the early chapter in the book, and it's it's talking about my personal experiences of representation on screen and part of the reason I put it early in the book is kind of to get it out of the way because I don't want this to be oftentimes again conversations about race and racism are deliberately reduced to the racialized person talking about their personal experiences of racism and I, and I want to make sure that people understand this as a structural issue and it's not about me yeah because that's I think that's a way of reducing it and dismissing it but but that said <laughs> of course I love talking about this <laughs> <laughs> um, on, on to me <laughs> yeah back to me um, <laughs> it's not about me or is it but but yeah I did I think it, I, I had what I didn't come to understand until later in life was quite an unusual experience um of growing up in this country anyway 
which mm. is that I grew up in um, a, a part of London called Hackney in, at a time before it's, it's changed a lot since I was growing up there. It's been very rapid. I think it's one of the most rapidly gentrified places on earth, probably, mm. um, in terms of house prices. Um, but when I was growing up, it was kind of like, it was considered a bit rough, but it was also like very multicultural. So, well, I say multicultural. Yeah, it was multicultural in terms of in terms of class, right? So that so there would be. I grew up in a council estate. I had lots of friends who grew up in like quite nice ex Victorian houses, and you know we were all sort of mixed in together in our in the, in the in our primary school. And also in terms of race, although that now there were it was a lot of Caribbean people, Black Caribbean people, a lot of mixed people like myself, mixed Caribbean, European. Um, and a lot of South Asian people, a lot of Turkish people. I mean, it basically, this would have been to do with the immigration trends at the time, a lot of Irish people. Um, but, but, um, but, that, but that experience of growing up in a culture where there was a lot of, it was a very mixed culture. And actually, at the time, what I was seeing on screen in television anyway, um, this was kind of the time of like Channel 4's sort of opening up and having this multicultural remit sort of spearheaded by Dondi and like, like we, we were all obsessed with like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, for instance. There were loads of these like black sitcoms coming over from... I remember um, Desmond America. around that time as well. Desmond's, yeah, which was the, a British one, um, a brilliant show. And um, I, we used to watch um, something called The Real McCoy, uh, Goodness Gracious Me, which were like these brilliant comedy. In fact, I grew up very close to the Hackney Empire, which was a bit of a centre for this kind of black and, and South Asian comedy. Um, but like, but but specifically, Black British and South British Asian, you know, like it was about things that we understood and like could relate to, and my classmates and I could understand and relate to. So, I, so it was a great privilege to grow up in that era, and in some ways to see my culture reflected on screen. And what I didn't realise till I was older was that most people in this country don't grow up in multicultural areas. Um, so the only the only so they're not under the only understanding they have of people of different backgrounds or from different parts of the world or even different class backgrounds or so on will be through television and film. So that kind of stuff was, I think, probably more important for them to be watching than us to be watching in terms of representation. And also but the, the, the picture is slightly complicated by the fact that once I got to an age, like as I was talking about earlier, when I was about 14, 15, I wanted to be a film director. And I was starting to look to art and screen cinema and, and, and television for something a bit more complicated than comedy. Yeah, something a bit more subtle, a bit more fully human. The things I was watching were all about middle-aged white blokes, right? Middle, mid, well, maybe not middle-aged, middle-class, yeah, mostly middle-aged blokes. So like my favourite films growing up, there were a lot of weird films about middle-aged blokes having weird relationships with like 12 year old girls around the, around the mid 90s so i'm talking about like a couple of my favorite films oh, leon. girls leon they all yeah. had natalie portman in as well beautiful girls which have also had natalie portman in uh, a ted demi film i think which i loved and it had sweet carol it had like a sweet caroline sing-along before it became popular with the football um and there's a film called buffalo 66 remember the vincent gallo oh film? yeah with christina ritchie and i love that so, like, all the depi- when, it, when it came to depictions of, like, a fully formed human being dealing with their insecurities and all their neuroses and all that kind of, like, 3D depiction, that was still reserved for, for white people and particularly white men, really. 
in that era, or at least, I mean, I've, I since I've learned more about cinema, I do realise there were there were literally three films made by black British film directors in the whole of the nineties, um, but they didn't come and kind of come into my consciousness at that time. I wasn't deeply plugged into the scene enough, um, and, and I suspect the majority of people my age in the country weren't. Um, so yeah, so so in a way, I had this incredible experience of screen culture because of like things that were going on in television at the time and I was benefiting from that but on the other hand a lot of lot of stuff still hadn't hadn't changed and um and one of the sort of points I make sort of semi-jokingly but not really in, in the in that chapter is that like the one point of view that I wasn't exposed to in my actual life very much was actually the dominant one in society at large which is that of the the white middle class man like I, ha- I just I didn't meet posh people until I went to university um and I didn't um and mo- like my teachers most of the people in my life were black women to be honest like they're the sort of authority figures black or south asian women. like when most of the teachers at my school the, the head teacher was this incredible Jamaican woman called Mrs Walkingshaw big up Mrs Walkingshaw wherever you are <laughs> and um <laughs> she's a she's a listener I, I know that for a fact <laughs> um and all they were like my dad said Georgie from like quite a working class background and he's a white bloke, but like, so that, so, so basically, and then it wasn't until I got to like, I went to Cambridge university after all this, which was a bit of a culture shock, but like that was when I suddenly started to see the world from the sort of point of view that the people who are making films and television were seeing it from. And, and, and suddenly it started to acknowledge that, that, that they would have found my upbringing incredibly exotic. <laughs> Did you feel represented when you watched Saltburn recently? <laughs> um um, i mean (laughs) i'll let you i'll let you think about that for a second with all the with all the possible ramifications on jokes but to to sort of come back with this in terms of the conversation that uh, i I really appreciate having is i come from definitely one of those places you're talking about i come from the northwest of england cumbria peninsula you know you have to go i think mike harding called it a 40 mile cul-de-sac you know it just goes straight into the irish sea and i didn't have uh, had very few uh, racial minorities. I mean, really minorities. Whereas I think if you go to Birmingham, London, Bradford, there are other places, uh, that yeah. word becomes a bit bit pointless. I have no problem saying that I was in the 1970s as a kid growing up in a working class family of uh, kind of liberal working class family, you know, granddad read, all, read Orwell, that sort of thing. Other granddad, uh, other grandparents were from Ireland, Irish Catholic. So they had their own share of um, hating the English. Uh, I was racist, no doubt about it. I had racist thoughts, racist ideas, and and not like I would not characterize myself as racist. I'd go to see Gandhi and feel like, oh yes, but um, but I remember getting to Liverpool University, and just as you were describing Cambridge University, I met my first. I had genuine interactions with my first black people, my first people from South London, from pe- from places like that, who parentage lineage i don't want to say second generation because i think that's a little bit racist in itself now was was from the caribbean or where or, or wherever and um and you know and i felt it not because i was like i felt my racism not in terms of i was anti them or but i wanted to be be my friend <laughs> oh look, mm. black, oh, look yeah, black yeah. people you know it was a, like it wasn't quite as crude as can i touch your hair but it was you know the next step in rung in the ladder down yeah and i, I was challenged 
by people. I remember in Barring Furnace, where I was brought up at school, there was a Chinese friend of mine who owned a Chinese takeaway. And I said, oh, we might come round to grab a, and then I used a word which yeah. he was uncomfortable with. I won't repeat it, but you can obviously guess. And I was like, that's what we call it in our house. It's just a, it's just a shorthand for, it's just, it's not, I'm, I, and as you were saying, I took it personally and like, it's not right. But as soon as he said, yeah, but it, it upsets me. You know, who's more important in this situation, me or you, you know? Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay. But, you know, I, 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 when I was reading your book, I was thinking, yes, that's the, that, especially that introduction that you have. I thought, yep, I definitely recognize that resistance to a conversation. And mm. people need to get over that. Yeah. And, that, and thank you for bringing it up because that is another big hope I have for the book, just that it will allow people to talk about these topics that we're very uncomfortable talking about. And I think the reason we're uncomfortable talking about it is this fear of being offensive, saying something, a genuine, you know, coming from a good place, fear of offending a friend or someone you like or respect or just a stranger. You know, no one wants to do that. Well, most people don't want to do that. Some people do. They're called British comedians. <laughs> Edgelons. Um, yeah, they're called Edgelons. Um, Ricky Gervais. But, um, like, uh, and then the other part of that is um, is fear of getting labelled a racist, right? Mm. Which we're at we're at this kind of weird juncture in the in the conversation about race and racism, where people know that it's not a cool thing to be racist, right? To be called a racist, to do racism, but they still don't haven't really had enough to have experience of talking about it or thinking about it or talking to people of colour about it to actually understand what racism is. So you get to this very weird counterproductive point where people are so scared of being called racist that they will happily perpetuate more racism <laughs> as long as they don't have to encounter and don't have to talk about it and thus run the risk of saying something racist or being called a racist by like calling out racism. And then you also have people who are quite willing to kind of weaponize that fear for their own ends. Um, but that's another big tangent, but like, but yeah, so I so I wanted I wanted the book to give people the language and the confidence to have these conversations and to know that you might say something a bit offensive, you might put your foot in it, you might do that. But what you can do is what you hopefully did in that conversation with your um, mate from who about the Chinese takeaway. Severin and, Choi. Severin Choi. Call out yeah. to Severin Choi. I think he's working in fashion now. Bless him. <laughs> big up Severin Choi. Big up Mrs. Walkinshaw. <laughs> um, and and say um, and just kind of shake off the defensiveness shake off that horrible feeling that we all get when we uh, recognize that we've been called out on something that we have done wrong um accept what they're saying and move on and do better you know when you know better you do better um and that's the only way that we're going to move forward and like yeah because because the thing is the thing of it is people sort of self-flagellating about being racist or having done racist stuff in the past the fact of the matter is and i and this this sometimes this terminology makes people uncomfortable what i'm going to say anyway we live in a white supremacist society white supremacy is very much embedded in many aspects of our of our society of, of institutions of our traditions of culture which includes screen culture um, and so we are if we're not reflecting on these things actively we are absorbing a lot of these messages every day and it's not surprising that you're going to be regurgitating them in casual conversation. That's why it's useful to just stop and think and reflect and examine 
your your unexamined assumptions and attitudes. Otherwise, you're fragile. Otherwise, you're fragile to being. Yeah. I, I read a, I read a a brilliant um, uh, definition of neoconservative, uh, which was a liberal who's just been mugged. And I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking that in terms of you know, if you don't examine your own racist assumptions and your own privilege and your yeah. own all these things then the minute you have something which feeds into a narrative of racism or narrative of sexism transphobia homophobia whatever it might be it's easy to fall back on that grand narrative which is mm. there for the taking you know mm. and a lot of us move through the world with this feeling which i think is probably a necessary part of our psychological armor but this idea that we are innately good people and that and that sort of tends to supersede any actions that we might do that are actually racist or wrong because we would never do anything like that, right? Um, and, and we have to be able to kind of challenge that. But I think, as with a lot of stuff in life, it's kind of a practice thing, right? Practice, like you get more practice, the more practice you get at, at, at doing something wrong, feeling the, the awkward feelings, apologizing, learning from your mistake, doing better, um, the, the more elegant you get at that that maneuver. And like, like one of the reasons I I talk about later in the book, I don't know if you've got there yet, but in the chapter on the difference between white and wrong and sort of the exploration of whiteness on screen, I talk about why I love the show And Just Like That, which is the spin-off of Sex and the City. And, and because I think it explores another thing that TV and film can do to help us in this kind of very ambitious grand endeavour of solving racism and saving the world, um, which is that it can give it can give people vicarious practice in those awkward things so like in the show the the the, the to, just to give it a bit more context sex in the city the original show which was about these kind of four white women in new york and had a lot of kind of unexamined racial what we might call microaggressions just bits of racism like sort of thrown in there like hanging around the way they treated characters of color whenever they appeared which was quite rare which is in itself disturbing in a city like new york which is very uh, racially diverse and diverse in other ways too but um so they did this so it kind of they took that criticism on board i think and made this 20 years on made this spin-off show with three of the key cast members and in that show what you see what you get a chance to see and vicariously experience perhaps is nice liberal middle class to upper middle class white middle-aged women who having come through feminism um, and post-feminism are very used to thinking of themselves as the either the oppressed or you know the on the side of righteousness, engaging in situations where they're not on the side of righteousness, and doing really cringy stuff like Miranda's sort of like in, Miranda's engagement with her. She's got a, a black woman professor on her uh, her human rights law course, I think it is, and does loads of really cringy stuff like touches her hair and, you know, stuff that, that the sort of younger generation know is, uh, is not cool. And then we sort of get the chance to vicariously experience that cringe and then move past it. And I think that's, like, it could have just protected its own character. The show could have protected its own characters from any of that embarrassment and just depicted them as kind of blameless, amazing sheroes that always do, you know, that always glide above everything. But I think the fact that it forced them and us to to feel the cringe and do it anyway is like, is actually really powerful and it's it's funny how it was received because i think it got a lot of criticism from women who might fall into that demographic for actually those reasons i think it made them uncomfortable in ways that they weren't willing to examine quite yet that's my take anyway for that a bit 
Yeah, I mean, no, let's let's actually go go through the book a little bit because, um, uh, yes, I have read the whole book. I'll have you know. Oh, I don't, I, don't, I never, <laughs> I never have people on writers on film without reading the book. Writers That's on fun. film hosted by readers of, uh, on film. It should be. <laughs> there are quite a few heroes in the book, and I love the subtitle of the book, which is a really optimistic one and a real, uh, you know, I mean, maybe a, a bit of a tongue in cheek with the optimism as well, obviously. But you have heroes like Riz Ahmed. Um, I would say Donald Glover is one of your uh, is one of the heroes yeah. in, in the in the book of people who are really taking on a, a kind of activist role as well as as well as doing everything else. And this goes back historically to people like Sidney Poitier and uh, and people who have. Um, in fact, I've just done an episode on the Oscar Wars with Michael Shulman and uh, his uh, piece on Sidney Poitier is really interesting. His take Ooh, of how, look forward to that. how how angry Sidney Poitier was and how his sort of persona as the dignified, you know, was was based on repressing kind of, he's like the Incredible Hulk, I'm always angry. You know? Oh, that, there's, that, that theme is um, really taken on later in like black superhero shows, like Black Lightning, like this idea that repressed anger can be a sort of actual source of power. Like he gets his powers in Black Lightning when he's like, he's sick of being the kind of upstanding, quote unquote, good Negro. And then one day it just all comes out in the form of like bolts of electricity from his arms. So, yeah, that's really interesting. So in terms of these heroes and in terms of this opti optimism, um, I I think the thing that I, I detected in the book was this is happening. This is good. And they're heroes to go back to. But it's really we, we it's not as recent as we think it is. You know, it's 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 happening right now. And it's happened before you know, in various strands, but it's not like, you know, I mean, one example of this from a negative point of view, we'll go on to the heroes in a moment, but is blackface. You talk about blackface as, as geez, they were doing it in peep show. It's not like it's right. like going back to, even to the, I mean, I'm again, I'm, I'm an old geezer. So I remember watching the black and white minstrels in, on 1970s television, you know? Um, so, so do you think we've seen the end of blackface or do you think it's still going to crop up? Well, this is why this conversation is so crucial, because we should have seen the end of blackface, right, when, I don't know, I mean, I could name, I mean, it should never have happened. <laughs> there should never have been blackface. But let's say, at the very least, we should have seen the end of blackface when Laurence Olivier did Othello in like 1965 or whatever that was. Right. That was the last time that, that it, even then, his the excuse for it was laughable and pathetic. But um but it, it keeps coming up. And the reason I think it came up, particularly in like, the 2000s, the 2010s, is because we were in this sort of period of liberal complacency, white liberal complacency, right? Obama was in the White House, racism had been solved, therefore it's a free-for-all for us to do whatever we want. And because someone like Tina Fey, who is another hero of mine, I think 30 Rock's possibly the funniest TV show ever made, but contains multiple instances of blackface. Um, because someone like Tina Rock is such an unimpeachable liberal hero, if she does blackface, of course it's not racist, right? Of course, of course it must be a satire of racists or, or how, whatever, you know, in this sort of nebulous way that we're not going to bother to pin down, right? So it, got, so it comes from this complacency. And the fact is that's allowed to happen because people don't understand the history of blackface. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Of why it's always racist, <laughs> why it's always an expression of white supremacy and of, 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 of white people's absolute entitlement to, to take on blackness and to use it as a performance, you know, prop or whatever. Um, and to, while simultaneously excluding actual black people from representing themselves in film and television and theatre. So that, so, so it comes from this kind of, and also that desire, which we sort of alluded to earlier, of comedians to kind of, to shock and to break taboos and stuff. If you don't understand why blackface is wrong, if you don't understand that like, Thomas Rice Dartmouth, Dartmouth the first, who is often credited as the originator of blackface in 1820s um, America, um, that his character that he used to do was called Jim Crow, and that that's where a first a derogatory name for black people comes from, and then the Jim Crow laws, the actual segregation laws. If you don't understand that link between blackface and actual real-world racist harm, um, or that blackface pops up every time Black Americans are agitating for their rights. There's kind of the corollary of a, of a blackface movement, you know, that's kind of trying to ridicule them back into their subjugated place in society. If you don't understand that history, you think it's just like a, an issue of bad taste, right? Or like it's just a bit uncool. Or and in which and, and if you're the kind of person which many comedians are, who is drawn to ta- to breaking taboos and shocking people and that kind of thing, then you think it's fair game for that, and that anyone who's objecting is just being a bit prissy. I think unless we un- make clear the history of it, the connection between it and real-world racist harm, that it's not just a matter of offence caused, but it's harm caused, um, then we're kind of doomed to repeat it every time we get into another space where we think that there's, you know, there's someone, someone blacks in the White House or, some, or a, a person of colour, or Riz Ahmed's winning Oscars, so therefore racism's over, and we, go, we all slip back into those, into those habits. Absolutely. I, I think that's a really important connection between Obama winning. I mean, there's an element of Pyrrhic victory. I mean, I would have voted him three times if I could have, obviously. <laughs> Very nice get out reference. <laughs> hey! <laughs> I read a book recently where he, um, uh, Google released like search terms because they, they have this big data capacity of just looking at who's searching what when. And the night after Obama's victory, the number of searches for N-word joke or, you know, is there a good N-word joke or N-word um, president and all this sort of stuff zoomed up. And they didn't spike in like the South or places that you would normally think of as stereotypically uh, racist. They spiked in these Democratic winning states. Right. But then if you took that map and overlaid it with Trump's victory, matched perfectly. So mm. it was a bunch of sort of 
borderline Democrats who were thinking, hmm, you know, has this gone too far, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Have, have yeah. We... And that's that really speaks. I think there was I think there's a culpableness. Sorry, getting a bit political here, but there's a culpable culpableness of the left everything's political it is yeah yeah (laughs) in sort of relaxing in sort of saying okay we've we won you know and uh we don't need to do this anymore we don't need to worry anymore about the police and about uh representation about all these other things because we've got the top job absolutely and that's why like i think we're going to get on to talking about the heroes the the, the heroes of the book but that's why i always when i talk about this kind of want to raise a note of caution as well because what happens and has happened over and over again in the film industry and probably in politics too, although that's not my area of expertise, is that a person of colour kind of rises to a position of power, sensible, ostensibly, so let's say it is powerful. Um, and, then, well, and then that is used to kind of mask the continuing inequities and injustices throughout society. So, so you might have not to harp on the band because it's not just him, but I do, I'm a big fan of, of Riz Ahmed, but Riz Ahmed, and he has said this himself. He's very well aware of this phenomenon and this dynamic, which is one of the reasons I admire him. But like, just because Riz Ahmed is very prominent, is getting loads of good roles and roles that don't um, that aren't stereotypically South Asian or, or or Islamophobic in a way that a lot of South Asian and Muslim actors from other parts of the world have been forced to the kinds of roles they've been forced to play for lack of other options for years. Just because he's suddenly getting all these roles doesn't mean that the problem's solved and we can all move on because often his prominence will be used to mask the fact that there's no, say, representation for, for Muslim women or South Asian women or um, that there's no kind of representation of working class Muslims. Like, I mean, he's was, is privately educated and went to Oxford as a lot of the... Often if you, if you, if you get a successful actor of colour, that will be their one aspect of, the, of their identity that diverges from the the norm and and in every other respect they'll be you know like you're eating educated Damien Lewis's or Benedict Cumberbatch's you know um and you know he's a man so and he can't he can't and has said so himself isn't trying to represent all facets of of his racial identity or of, of what it is to be South Asian or what it is to be Asian or what it is to be a Muslim or what it is to be um a British a British person of color whatever um, so we'd still need that kind of multiplicity of different kinds of representation. So, so that there's a kind. I'm just saying. I'm just warning against this danger of like lionising individuals to the point where we obscure the, the 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 still very urgent structural issues in the film and TV industry and and on screen. Absolutely, it can be, it can sort of become a um, so something that we can point to and feel good about ourselves and not question the underlying exactly you know the yeah. bigger underlying problems. Um, I, I, and you, I mean, you even talk about, um, you forgive me, I forget the name of the show now, but there is a show about a Jewish family called Friday Night Dinner and a yeah. show about a, a, a Muslim family called... Citizen Khan. That's it, yes, Citizen Khan. Yeah. And you're sort of quite critical, you sort of compare the two and are quite mm. critical of the latter as, um, you know, in one sense, yes, it's giving visibility and it's a sitcom and it does this, that and the other, but they... they they actually approach their their subjects in a, in a, and their characters in a, in a very different way. Mm. Well, yeah, I guess I I'm, I'm, I don't want to come down too harshly on Sears and Khan. I, I think 
my point really is it's not really a criticism of Citizen Khan as, a, as opposed to a criticism of the wider, like, screen culture environs, the wider ecosystem of screen culture. Meaning, so what Adil Ray is trying to do with Citizen Khan is quite a sort of noble, interesting, creative idea in that he's trying to retroactively, retrospectively insert British Muslim families into this kind of knockabout 70s family sitcom style because back in the actual 70s, the only time you saw a South Asian person was usually Spike Milligan in brown face makeup, like oh, doing being tremendously racist. <laughs> and I used to, and, I used to love Spike Milligan's poetry and yeah. all that stuff, you know. But yeah. I even remember as a kid thinking, "This, this is kind of wrong." I meet a lot of people who love Spike Milligan, but um, I mean, I have to say, there's, there's, and this is not about the racism or otherwise, but I just never got it myself. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But, anyway, but like. If you if you go back and watch these old clips from like till death do us part that stuff, I mean I have to say they're not even funny. And I and I think till death does part is a very well written sitcom. But like these particular stuff, the only joke is the racism. It's not like it's this sophisticated satire of racism which people sometimes try and make it out to be. Like I would urge people to go back and watch them on YouTube because um, it isn't. But anyway, I've forgotten my, what I was talking about. Oh yeah, Citizen Khan. Citizen Khan. So, so so he's got this a deal where he's got this kind of idea of which I think is a nice one that he wants to to allow little boys like him or or people to or people in general to see British Muslims as part of this kind of aspect of British culture and respectfully insert them. But the problem is that kind of humour, it would work if this was just one aspect of how British Muslims are being represented on television, then it would be okay. It, it would be okay to have a few kind of quite reductive racial stereotypes because we'd have a million other shows to see all the different sides and facets of British Muslim identity or, or British South Asian identity. But because it's only this one, it, it that becomes all there is. And then it is quite reductive and, and, and it feels quite racist and it feels like an emphasis on the sort of jokes that, that racist white people would make about uh, British Muslims, like an emphasis on the difference rather than the sameness. And I, and I, and I, and I think, I really like Friday Night Dinner for lots of reasons. There, there has been criticism of it, the fact that the majority of the cast are not actually Jewish. That's a, a kind of interesting related debate. But um, but, the, but I think part of the reason it's so good, apart from it is well-written and stuff, is just that there is more British Jewish representation in on, on our screens, perhaps not as directly referencing religion. Although it kind of doesn't really. Like Aside from the fact that it's about Friday Night Dinner, which is obviously like Shabbat dinner, it's not really about Jewishness or Jewish religion or that kind of thing. It's it's just, it's a sort of very recognisable universe. Or the jokes of it aren't about sure. aren't aren't they aren't landing on the, the Jewish members or their Jewish identity. They're landing often on the kind of non-Jewish sort of neighbour um, who's a, who's like a sort of philo semite and like is obsessed with um, <laughs> is and in, in love with the mother of the house and like, all this other funny stuff that's going on. But yeah, so so I think. It's, a, it's about a difference of emphasis, but it's also about the wider screen context. Like often like one of the downsides of being the first to represent your racial group or one of the first is that you have this big kind of unfair burden of representation that's put upon you. And I think I do want to recognise that Adel Ray is like is holding up a lot of weight there. 
And it's not really, it's not fair to blame him for the ways in which that show, entirely for the ways in which that show has been misinterpreted or or is liable to be misinterpreted. Yeah, you actually have a quote, I'd rather be the 10th than the first. You yeah. Know, I'd, rather, <laughs> I'd rather not have that pressure. Yeah, because then you get to exist in this whole constellation of different kinds of representation mm. and it takes the pressure off you and it means you can just make your art for art's sake, which is a privilege that white artists have had for a, a much longer time. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can just be you know meaningless and apolitical mm, exactly. and all <laughs> over the place. Um, I, like uh, it's interesting while you're talking about the slots. Like, there's only going to be one slot for a sitcom mm. based on this, and there's only going to mm. be one. You know, I remember someone talking about like uh, uh, in literature about you know haven't we had enough sort of Indian novels recently? And it's just like <laughs> nobody would ever say that about Irish novels. No one would yeah. ever say you know okay enough with the Irish already. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think that's also interesting when you come to sort of certain tropes uh, throughout cinema and you bring up the point of propaganda and how, mm. you know, you always have the stern, the stern sort of sergeant or, or lieutenant or uh, mm. I'm not sure if my ranks in, in my experience <laughs> of police work is, is relatively uh, slim. But, you know, Brooklyn 999 and, you know, rigs in the lethal weapons films. And um, I mean, I think uh, you, you bring up the point about 48 hours i think that exchange with eddie murphy and nick nolte where he calls him out on racism is kind of it's talking about to walter chill uh, walter chow who wrote a book about walter hill he was saying that exchange is really interesting because eddie murphy doesn't forgive him eddie murphy mm. doesn't say uh it's okay don't worry about it i understand he says it's not enough you know it's not you, you know he sort of doesn't let him yeah, get yeah. away with it yeah. doesn't he say he says um like while you're being Abraham Lincoln about it, give me some money so I can take this girl to a to a nightclub across the or to something across the road. Yeah, so but it's do, not... they are kind of dismiss they are kind of dismissive about it. Right, I think. I mean, it does end in them being mates, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I guess it's sort of transactional. Okay, you know, yeah, I'll take. It's I'll transactional, take, and also in a good mood. I'm going to get something out of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're feeling liberal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, yeah, and and it's kind. Of, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Does I, I think he? I don't know if he forgives him, but there. I think it does conform to this kind of racial reconciliation trope in that, like, Nick Nolte's character. Like the fact is. Someone that racist should not be a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we can agree on that. <laughs> he should be sat, right? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but in the end, like... Should have, should have would have, could have. Not just his <laughs> problems with racism, but like the whole of the, you know, racial injustices within the criminal justice system in America are apparently solved because these two guys can get along now, right? Because if you... Yeah. Yeah, I I see your point, and although I mean you'd also, have to. Also, he gets to be the hero. He gets True. To, he gets to do where whereas Eddie Murphy's kind of just on the sidelines looking scared. He gets to be the big. So I still think there's an element of sort of soothing the white guy in the audience who wants yeah. to have his cake and eat it in terms of chucking about the odd racial slur, but still being the macho hero at the end of the day and not yeah. being really called to account about it. That Walter Chow doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to throw Walter under the bus for that one. Fight, fight, fight. Get, him up, get us both on the show and we'll, exactly, we'll fight exactly. out. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think it's an interesting point because I think um, 48 Hours is where you have the beginning. I mean, you could go back to In the Heat of the Night and um, 
you know they call me mr tibbs you know that yeah uh, because I think that that slap that Sidney Poitier gives the the guy who's dissing him is, um, you know, it's sort of a slap that was heard across America. You know, it's a yeah. a, a big moment in film. Um, yeah, you're, you're you're making me realize I missed an opportunity to compare that slap with the Oscars slap of. Um, oh yeah, there's, there's something in that's a, that's an essay for another time, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that slap is incredible. But also, you're kind of in, in thinking about Eddie Murphy and and Sidney Poitier, and like there is there's something and heroes of, of this conversation. Like there are these actors whose charisma is so powerful that they can kind of transcend the material that they're in. So there's something mm. subversive about their charisma. I think Eddie Murphy's one, and I think Sidney Poitier's one. That like even if the role is quite thin or two dimensional. They're, they're so good and talented that they sort of assert their humanity in everything they're in anyway. And there's something really like revolutionary and cool about that as well that I think should be sort of um, recognized even while, even while we're kind of aware of the idea of over lionizing these people. Like I think, I think, and I think Eddie Murphy is one. I love Eddie Murphy. He's Donkey one and Shrek. So maybe that's where Whitmer, me and Mortel would agree. Yeah. I'm, I'm Donkey and Shrek is my... Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. I just skated over that because... Uh, <laughs> I know it is. I, I gave you the opportunity to withdraw, but you insisted. Well, yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to double down on that one. <laughs> I, 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 I've, oh, my God. I've just got kids of a certain age, so Donkey is... I've seen it quite recently. I've yeah. also got kids of a certain We're age. We're having profiteroles. <laughs> yeah, he's great. I wish he would... Um, Start making good movies again. <laughs> oh my god, don't we? Don't we all? Don't we all? He just seems to make like um I remember going back and watching Bowfinger recently, and that's a that's an amazing film. That's yeah, so yeah, yeah. good. And Got so yeah. there's almost like an alternate career there where he could mm. a career pathway could have gone off and made actually mm. good films rather mm. than so coming towards uh towards the end of the uh, of the conversation, the, the, there are uh, you already have in the heroes that you that you you talk about, but also in the the idea of um, looking at whiteness as a specific thing. You come up, I think it's your last chapter, an idea of how can we move forward? How can we, you know, how can we make the the subtitle of your book a serious thing rather than a tongue in cheek thing? And, and uh, so, what are you, so so? You've already mentioned the whiteness to some extent with the Sex and the City sequel. What other things do you think uh, we can do as as filmmakers can do, the industry can do, audiences can do going forward? Well, a lot of it is about stuff that's been talked about already in terms of the industrial side of things, like making sure that filmmakers of colour have the same opportunities, and not just filmmakers, critics, festival curators execs, script writers, that people in sort of creative positions of power, that that is diversified and that we have more people of colour there telling their own stories and any other story that they want to tell in the same way that white people Who was do. the journalist? I forget her name now, but there was a journalist recently with a really big, I think she was a Variety or The Hollywood Reporter, and she wrote a piece about being in Cannes and all the microaggressions she had to deal with of them double checking her badge and stopping her places and and mm. it got to a point where she's like this is not a coincidence i'm getting mm. this is pissing me off now yeah and she wrote a big thing about it and it was like god damn i wish i could remember her name but i'm just interrupting this conversation briefly to say that the name of the journalist i mention 
uh, was Valerie Complex, and I'll put she's a journalist for Deadline, and I will put a link to her article in the show notes. It's yeah, a, again, that really made me sort of check my privilege in the flight. I never have to deal with that. I never have. I never have to even think of that as a problem. You know? Yeah, and I, I think once that time comes, it takes the pressure off all of us. You know, mm. <laughs> whatever our color, because we can. We can. I mean, one of the let's call it a pressure that exists on on white critics is this idea. I think kind of self perpetuated because it's good for your career if you're a white critic. But this idea that you that as a white person you have access to the sort of universality of the human experience and that you can walk into any film about anything, about anyone, and set aside your personal experience and analyse it completely objectively. And the fact is none of us can do that. Um, And if we kind of recognise that, it takes that pressure off white critics, but it also um, allows critics of colour kind of access to to a sort of level playing field. But, um, But I mean, that's one of the big ideas that I'm talking about in the chapter on the difference between white and wrong is this, this thing where whiteness is the sort of default for humanity, right? Right. It has been since the the Enlightenment, where you know, since Thomas Jefferson was was writing um, the Bill of Rights and and constituting the idea of of, the, of the, the right to be free and happy just to kind of the white European settlers, not to the indigenous people whose land they were stealing or the uh, African people who they'd enslaved. So like this idea, and that has continued into the 20th century in, in this new medium of, of, of cinema. So like, and, it, and it, the way it perpetuates is this idea that white people are, can speak to the humanity of humanity. I'm quoting um, Richard Dyer here, who wrote a great book in the 90s called, he's a film critic, film professor called White, um, which everyone should read if they're interested in this. But, um, and that, that, but that race people or racialized people can only speak for their race. Yeah. So we have to, I think, and the way that we dismantle that idea is, I think, by encouraging white filmmakers to reflect on their own whiteness and to make films that acknowledge it. And even and that can be as simple as just talking about as just kind of racializing white people a bit more, like saying, mm. like recognizing that when Sophia Coppola makes The Beguiled and makes lots of choices about which characters she's going to cut out of the source text, which are the characters of color that she is making a film not about women, but about white women. Mm. It doesn't, you know, she's deliberate and she's deliberately doing that. And she would frame that as I want, she in fact has said, I wanted to talk about gender. So I took the black people out of it so that I could. Oh, they got, rid- got rid of the third gender. Yeah. As, though, <laughs> as though black people aren't, as though black women aren't women. Right. Yeah. yeah right. Um, so, so I think, and, that, and, that, and she's entitled to do make all those choices creatively. I think she's uh-huh. a very interesting and, and good filmmaker. But as as critics and as audiences, we need to say, hang on a minute, that's a film. That's a white film about white women enjoying the murderous solidarity of their white sisters in you know the antebellum South or the post Civil War South, whenever it's set exactly, and uh, and and not and not subscribe to this fantasy that it's about all women or that it's representative of all women or that, that because it's white and whiteness has that power. So we have to take that power away from whiteness, I think. In, you know, and one of the ways we can do that is simply by recognising it and calling it out and naming it. Um, and, that, and, that, and also we have to be sophisticated and mature enough to see that that isn't a criticism of the filmmaker themselves or even the film. It's, a, it's, a, it's about the, the sort of wider context of cinema and, and film and television in our, in our culture. And, and of ourselves as critics and as audiences. I mean, the, I, th- I think that's that's absolutely. I just watched um, a couple of Sofia Coppola films because there was a retrospective in Amsterdam where it was recently, and um, 
and I watched Gone with the Wind uh, on Monday, mm. and I thought you kind of have to do to when I was reading about the beguiled in your book, I was thinking you kind of have to do the same thing with the beguiled, which was made very recently that you had mm. to do with Gone with the Wind, because kind of that absence of slavery and black women and the idea is endemically racist. You have to yeah. sort of like say, OK, I'm going to watch this and just take that as part of it. And that film plays differently depending on if you're someone who has the privilege of, of, I mean, what the film's doing is, as all her films do, is kind of giving us this sort of lovely, soft, feminine, floaty, visual and story that we can kind of luxuriate in. But you can't luxuriate in that if you are aware of the wider context of it, you know, that the Southern Belle only exists because of the exploitation of the labour of, of enslaved black people, right? But that, that, that kind of lifestyle isn't possible without that. And some people can go into the film and forget that quite easily. And some people can't. And some people and that, can have plantation <laughs> weddings. Some people can have plantation weddings. Some people can celebrate the happiest moment of their life on the site of torture and murder and not even think about it. And many mm. of us can't. And like, and I think, so I think, yeah, that the, the, these films play differently for those reasons. And, and we have to acknowledge that as well. What do you, uh, I know we're getting towards the end, but it's a, I'm curious how you feel about the indigenous film about the film about the indigenous uh, murders of the Osage Indians, the killers of the flower moon. Um, mm. I rewatched it recently. I thought I'll give it another chance because I and I just still had the same problems with that film that I just thought. I love Lily Gladstone, but her role is so thin in that and her and the yeah. way the story is constructed, she just doesn't get to do mm. it just doesn't it's no longer it's about white people being bad to um mm. indigenous people and then being caught by other white people. Um I really like it. Okay. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Go ahead. Um, part of part of the reason I think part of the reason is for just what you're saying and what I have been saying. It's about white people. Mm. It's about white culpability in mm. um, the indigenous genocide and land theft and murder and colonization, basically. And it's, about, and it's interestingly about individual white culpability, the culpability of individual white people and where their guilt lies and so on, which I think is a very under-explored uh, topic in American cinema. And it's being explored by perhaps the greatest living film director, Martin Scorsese, which I think is really important. So I so I like it for that, but I I note that also the only reason it is that 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 storytelling lands with me and that those themes I'm capable of perceiving them is because it comes along in the context where indigenous filmmakers are now making their own films and telling their own stories in the in a far greater number than was previously the case before like the 70s or 80s. So I I'm a big fan of a show called Reservation Dogs by a guy called um, Sterling Harjo. In fact, which Lily Gladstone has in fact appeared in along with a load of other incredible um, indigenous actors. Um, and um, so like, and she's made she's made other films with, with, with indigenous filmmakers. Um, and, you know, basically these things exist. So therefore in that context, I think it's okay for Martin Scorsese to make a film about this subject. I know I also, I think inbuilt in it is a kind of quite humble, but necessary acknowledgement that there's only so far he can go as, as a storyteller on this. I think that's in the way the film ends, which I don't want to ruin for anybody, but I think the ending is a kind of acknowledgement that there's, there is a, there's only so much of this story that I can tell, and I'm going to leave some space for some other people to tell their part of it. 
<clears throat> and I also think that's embedded in in Gladstone's kind of taciturn but very full performance. Like she, it's almost a very knowing and why. Like it's almost like she's not speaking because what can she say, right? But, but there's 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 a lot in that. But it's, she's a very incredible actor. Have you seen Certain Women? She's in, in the Kelly Reichardt film. She did. She. I urge you to see that as well. It's incredible. It's not about indigenous stuff, but she's so she's such an incredible actress. But um, so I think that that is also saying leaving space for an indigenous filmmaker to come along and tell their side of the story. But but um but I mean yeah. And it, and it, and in fact, uh, it's interesting. In the years, in the just a handful of years, really, since Indigenous filmmakers have had access to the means to make films and and television shows themselves, it's interesting that they don't tend to be westerns or to be dwelling on that period in time. They're about what's going on now, often with it. Indigenous film. That seems to be what that what. I mean, obviously, I'm generalising, which is. Yeah, but Chloe Zhao's these things are these films are interested in, yeah, right. Um, so, 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 yeah. I mean, I I think, yeah, I I love Kids of Flamme. I think it's a really interesting attempt at being a genuinely revisionist Western, and I Mm. think the whole of the Western genre is, you know, racially problematic. Well, it's the first time I've used the word problematic in this interview, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> and on that bombshell. Yeah. <laughs> no, Walter Chow is so wrong about Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't know why I listen to him. That guy, he's just filling me with wrongness from every angle. <laughs> Blame him for every opinion I have that is wrong. No, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting counter-argument. And I'm uh, I shall I shall digest that and uh and have a think about that i definitely don't need you know you're put you're kind of pushing on an open door when it comes to loving scorsese films right so and i was somebody who liked the irishman so um i like the irishman too yeah i'm also a diehard scorsese fan so yeah so i mean i I, it's a film i want to like and you've kind of you've yeah you've kind of given me an idea of going back and watching it a third time. Maybe give it a year now, but yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, right, last question. So I always ask people, Ellen, to recommend a film book for mm. our listeners, um, other than their own, obviously, because hopefully this whole episode is a recommendation of your film book. <laughs> um, so what book would you like to recommend? Sean Levy's Rat Pack Confidential. Oh, <laughs> what a brilliant book. I love reading about the Rat Pack. There's another... He's 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 a great writer. It's full of really interesting kind of anecdotes and analysis. And I mean, I just find that those performers and that period of Hollywood history deeply, deeply fascinating. Um, and it kind of made me go off and watch all the sort of more obscure uh, Rat Pack films. One of my favorite films is Some Came Running, the Vincente Minnelli film. Oh, it's so um, beautiful, that film. Yeah, it's so I love, luxurious. I love, I love a, a, a very colorful, saturated other film. But um, but yeah, and, and, and a bit of melodrama as well. That's my, Douglas Sirk is my kind of all-time great. And so that, that's that's right on my uh, street. But um, yeah, so it's just, it's a great book. And, and then once you read that, read um, Mr. S and Me, I think it's called which is, I can't remember the name of the guy that wrote it, but he basically was Frank Sinatra's valet for a long time. And it's a very kind of scurrilous, but also worshipful take on um, Frank Sinatra's private life. <laughs> but with loads of great anecdotes about Ava Gardner. But the thing, also the reason particularly why I find it particularly interesting is that um, 
he was a black guy, this fellow. So, and he talks about race. And he was also actually, he was black and Jewish. So he's had an interesting relationship with Sammy Davis Jr. Um, and um, he, and also like Ava Gardner apparently would talk about how she thought that she was probably mixed race. So a lot of people were from where she was from. And, um, and um, anyway, yeah. And also the, the kind of the racial, uh, well, racism basically that he had to put up with from <laughs> and, and, the uh, racial like, humor. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah, let's not euphemize it. But yeah, all that kind of stuff that was like just part and parcel of this the you know banter we would probably call it now at the time. Oh, but, um, banter. <laughs> yeah, Lawrence yeah. Lawrence Fox would uh, <laughs> would have a. A yeah. beer garden full of dance. Yeah. Um, that book, uh, the first time I ever came to Italy in 1998, nine, mm. um, it was the days when there weren't any bargain uh, uh, airlines. And it, you had to, there was a British Airways sort of knockoff, which was the only bargain called Go. And they flew from Stansted like really early in the morning. So you basically had to go to Stansted at like 11 o'clock at night and just sleep in the airport. And I had that book. And so I just read the book in one go through the night. And I was so tired. My, I got a nosebleed. So oh my, my, God. my copy of that book has these big splotches of blood on one Dined of the Dined in blood, yeah. I know. But it was, uh, it was so, so it has that memory for me of where yeah, I was reading that's intense. it. intense. I bet you were yeah. dreaming about Dean Martin and Joey Bishop for years. Yeah, to come. <laughs> and Peter Lawford, especially in yeah. the later chapters, uh, yeah. becomes quite a tragic figure. And, yeah, you know. yeah, oh, it's great. I need to. I'm, I've, I've talked myself into reading it again. Actually, I think oh. I've forgotten enough of it. That it'd be a good read. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and the the uh, what was this, the the second one? Driving Mr. S. Uh, Mr. S and me. I think it's Mr. Called. S and me. I will have to look that it's up. It's grammatically incorrect. Do Mr. S and I. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Sinatra was never known for his grammar, was he? <laughs> <laughs> like his punctuation yeah. was off as well. It's fitting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Ellen, thanks so much for the book and thanks so much for being uh, a great guest and having a great conversation. Thanks for a lovely chat, yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.